a very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to the next in our online conversations. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor of St Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the cathedral. This conversation is with Jarrell Robinson-Brown, looking at his new book. And our conversation ranged, as it normally does, widely, looking at what the definition of grace is, what it means for the church to experience a famine of grace, how we understand identity and our different identities, and what impact that makes on us, and how we continue to thrive in a context which sometimes leaves us feeling a little battered and bruised. It is an important conversation and also a hugely stimulating one. And I hope you enjoy it. Jarell, it's lovely to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us to talk to us about the subject of your new book. Thank Underpinning you. the book is the theory of grace um, and that, that wonderful word, which is so important. Um, but I don't know about other people, but I find that word grace is actually really quite hard. I use it a lot and it means a lot to me theologically, but I always have that slight sense I haven't quite understood exactly what it means. So I'm wondering if you'd like to talk to us a little bit about what the word means to you and why it's so important in your new book. I think that's definitely true, um, Paula, and it's really good to be able to share um, in conversation with you. I think one of the things is we all think we know what we mean or what the other means when we speak about grace. And for me, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on it was to kind of unpack uh, one particular way of looking at it from my own perspective. Um, so one way I would describe grace is wounded love for a wounded world. That's the love of God um, for the world that God has created. I also really love how Father Peter Groves um, talks about it. He's the vicar of St. Mary Magdalene in Oxford, and he wrote a book called Grace. And he says that grace is the cruciform love of God, meaning that grace is the love of God in the shape of the cross. And so for me, um, I, I quote him in my book using um, those words because I find that sums up what grace for me um, is. It's the love of God in the shape of the cross, in the shape of Christ. Uh, so not, not just a theory, but an embodied thing, which we see most fully in the person of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really powerful, isn't it? I love the idea of the, the cruciform um, love of God. It's kind of really powerful. And so, of course, then you go on in the book to talk about how there is a famine of grace. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what, why you chose that? I mean, it's a very, very evocative phrase. Um, and I've been, it's one of those, um, you know, where you can just pull out the phrase itself and chew on it. Um, and what was in your mind when you were talking about there being a famine of grace in the church? I think for me there was this sense in which you know the the famine of grace for me would be anywhere where that love where that that cruciform love is not found um, and of course the thing about famines is that they don't just kind of happen as a phenomena they they are caused because of how we treat the earth um, and because of how resources are used um, in a in a way which is not fair or just or equal and for me there's the same thing about grace that actually the famine of grace is in the places where grace for all isn't preached or practiced, where inclusion, equality, love, welcome um, are not offered, where hospitality is limited to people who are just like us. Um, and of course, the thing about famine is that people die because of famine. And I, I know that from a famine of grace, um, LGBTQ plus people um, do die because of the exclusion 
and marginal, marginalization and oppression that we experience um, within Christian community. So it was powerful language that I thought really got to the heart of what I think is happening um, for many of us who seek to belong or, or are belonging within Christian community mm. as those who are of faith and also LGBT plus. Thank you, a very, very powerful. And um, the thing that I was kind of reflecting on while I was reading your book is um, we all believe in grace, as I've said, you know, it's, it's one of those words that is kind of, um, as Christians, it's right there at the forefront of, of who we are and what we believe. Um, why do we so easily slip into um, there being a famine of grace. It feels to me as though there's a, a mild contradiction internally, isn't there? That on the one hand, we absolutely believe in it. And on the other hand, we really struggle to show it. And I wonder if you've got any reflections on where that comes from and why we wrestle with it so much. I think part of it is that because we think we, we know what we mean by it, we don't think about it enough. So actually we just assume that there's this common understanding of grace. And because we speak about it so much and sing about it so much, um, it must just be functioning everywhere. And I also think that people like St. Augustine, for example, a theologian um, from the 4th and 5th centuries, you know, his, his own work on grace, which talks about grace being something which is so much connected to the will, so how we, how we choose to live and what we do with our lives and our bodies, um, also makes grace quite a complicated thing when we begin to talk about grace in relation to those who are marginal um, voices, within the life of the church. So if grace becomes something which is tied up with our wills and, and we're able, if you like, um, to do the right and holy thing, well, if the right and holy thing is seen as being heterosexual, um, then actually, or cisgendered, for example, then that, that causes a lot of problems and trouble when we're talking about race in relation to LGBTQ plus people. And then when you bring race into that, if, if being right and holy is also about being white, then for black LGBTQ plus people, um, race can be a really uh, complicated doctrine when we don't think about it um, in enough depth. And one of the things I wanted to do was kind of trouble the waters there and say, well, actually race at its most simplest is about the inclusive, all-encompassing, um, welcoming love of God, which has no terms or conditions, no small print, and therefore includes everybody, regardless of our different body marks or identities. Um, that was really important for me to to say in the book. Yeah, and um, um, you say it very, very powerfully indeed, as you just have now. Um, let's just go on and think a little bit about Advent and Christmas, which is on the horizon now. Um, and right at the heart of grace and um, what you're talking about throughout the book is, of course, the power of the incarnation of Jesus being made flesh. Can you tell us why Jesus's birth makes all the difference to our understanding of grace and what, what we believe about it? I suppose for me, um, the Advent and Christmas stories are the most powerful. And I've often said to friends, that actually, I love Easter and Easter is very important, but there's something really uh, profound for me about the incarnation and I think it's because it's God um, at God's most recognizable um, to us that actually God um, reveals God's self as one of us in the incarnation and that's deeply powerful there's something for me about the vulnerability um, of God choosing to take up space in a in a dirty uh, stable, um, coming as vulnerable flesh as a child, as a baby, uh, with no place to be born in, 
which is secure or safe or clean and warm. Um, there's something about that uh, dislocatedness that, that is in the nativity story, um, both the bits of it that come from scripture and the bits of it that we put in over the years. Um, there's something quite powerful about that. And I think for me, um, the reason I find it powerful is because it, it connects with me at my most human um, and causes me to ask questions about my own vulnerability um, and my own power as well. Um, you know, who am I in the story? Mm -hmm. Am I the innkeeper um, who says, you know, no room at the inn? Am I the one who offers hospitality? You know, am I Joseph? Am I Mary? Am I Jesus? Am I the donkey? You know, who, who am I in the story? Um, and at different times, you know, each year, I might be somewhere different. But there's something so real, viscerally, about the story of the Incarnation that I think causes me to ask really deep questions that I might otherwise avoid. And so that's why it's, it's such a powerful mm. part of our theology. Yeah. I love that idea of um, taking up different characters um, in the nativity story. You know, um, we all of us have our childhood memories, don't we, of um, what what you got to play in the nativity story. I never got a good part. I still haven't got over it. <laughs> and that every Christmas in a way, it kind of comes back to me of, um, of yeah. so I, I always felt like I was the bit part on the outside. In fact, I remember my eldest daughter, when they did their nativity play, um, she came home utterly gutted because of course she'd hoped for Mary, which is frankly the only good girl's part in the nativity. And she got the third king's third helper. Wow. Um, and she was <laughs> utterly devastated. <laughs> but th there is something in that, I think, isn't there, about kind of being the outsider mm. and being the outsider watching God becoming the outsider in his yeah. birth. Um, that I, kind of brings it powerfully to me every year that, um, that here was God putting himself outside and we as outsiders can greet him even if we only get to be the third king's third helper. It's something, it's something sadly I think that we only really focus on during Advent and Christmas and I, I often um, when I was in Methodist ministry used to pick you know Advent or Christmas hymns um, deliberately at other times in the year because actually I think it's so important for us to think about the incarnation constantly you know and not just for um, one point of the year because it is a powerful doctrine for us to keep coming back to um, and I wish we did that more. You know it's fascinating isn't it I've never thought about that because we do talk about um, the cross and resurrection all the way through the year because we focus on it at um, Holy Week and Easter um, and if we could think about the incarnation more consistently through the year we would balance our theology out a little bit. So. Which brings me to the other subject, um, we've already yeah. talked about um, grace as the cruciform love of God um, and the idea of um, Jesus's death on the cross. Do you want now to bring in the importance of the death and resurrection to your understanding of grace? Sure. Well, I particularly in the book look at the death of Christ as being um, symbolic of black and LGBTQ plus suffering. That actually, you know, what what puts Christ um, to death on the cross you know, other powers of empire, which collude with the powers of the religious institutions, you know. So there were strong parallels for me between how sometimes the, the religious powers of our day and the powers of uh, the empire, if you like, society, culture, the law, um, can inflict real visceral, physical harm, even death, on uh, people of colour and on queer people. Um, but I interestingly take the kind of, the view that many of 
some of the patristic, so the early thinkers within the church, um, some of the, the thinking that they have done on this. So um, someone like Athanasius, who was writing in the fourth century in Egypt, say that actually the incarnation kind of can't be separated from the crucifixion and resurrection. That actually um, God doesn't just become human at the point of Christ's birth, but is uh, fully seen, if you like, you know, Christ is fully seen as human and divine upon the cross as well. And so actually we see the kind of the summit of Christ's incarnation when Christ is crucified, that actually Christ discloses um, the face of God to us in a deeper way upon the cross, not just in the manger. Mm -hmm. And I think I take that kind of long view that actually the incarnation is everything from Christ's birth to his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. That all of this is about God revealing God's face. Um, and so I, I I can't really separate the death and resurrection from the birth. Um, they all are part of one long continuum for me. Mm. So the I one absolutely thing, agree. Right, so sure. Carry on. I, I, I interrupted you. The one thing that the resurrection, I think, says for me most powerfully um, is that the death and the powers of the empire and the religious institutions don't have the last word. And so actually there is a powerful statement there about, um, you know, evil not, not having the upper hand. And I think it was um, Fulton Sheen who said that evil may have its hour, but God will have God's day. And I love that because I see that in the resurrection narrative, definitely. And I love how, so I, I spent some time thinking what uh, about what, what for me was the most important salvation moment, you know, mm. um, and so I went, well, obviously the death, and the resurrection and the ascension and then of course the coming of the spirit at pentecost and then i started going backwards and going well of course also the life and the ministry and the teaching and the healing and then of course the the birth and so i ended up with, exactly with you where i kind of ended up with this kind of this is the salvation moment and um i love that moment in the nunc dimittis um the lord now let us thou thy servant go depart in peace when simeon is holding the baby jesus in his arms and he says I have seen salvation, not I have seen the saviour, but I have seen salvation. And it feels to me as though what he's saying is exactly this, that the baby Jesus who has currently not done anything at all because he's so small um, is salvation in human form. And there is, I think, something very beautiful about that and kind of chimes in with what you're talking about there. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, so you talk a lot in the book about um, what the church would look like if we actually believed what we say we believed. Um, one of the um, pieces of theology that I really enjoy is a, a work by um, Helen Cameron, who talks about the different forms of theology. And for me, one of the kind of really powerful things that she points out is that we often have an espoused theology, what we say about what we believe, and an operant theology, which is actually what we do about what we believe. And um, in a way, I was reminded about that very powerfully in your book as I was reading my way through, um, which is that what we say about what we believe is not actually what we do about what we believe. Um, and I wonder um, if you'd like to reflect a little bit about actually what the church would look like um, if we lived what we say we believe. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, the first thing to say is that in one way, the church just mirrors our own lives, you know, if we're all honest, actually. Um, 
you know, we all declare and proclaim certain things and, and um, you know, verbally believe certain things, but actually our lives don't often or always mirror that. And so the church, I think, shows us its humanity in that sense, that it, it can't live up to what it says it wants to live up to. Um, but what would the church look like? I think, for a start, it would be a humbler, weaker, more honest, more transparent, more loving community of equals um, under Christ if it was able to live what it says. You know, that actually, um, because the first thing in be, being able to live what we proclaim, I think, is realising that we don't. We have to acknowledge where we're actually starting up from. And that would require such a deep honesty that I think it would move us um, to be more transparent and humbler. Um, and that would be so much more attractive, I think, to the world, because we wouldn't be kind of having to keep up this appearance of, you know, a church where everyone loves each other and everyone gets along and... Um, you know, although people know that's not the reality, we often have to keep up that appearance and we think that that's, keeping up that appearance is somehow attractive. Of course it's not, because people know it's not true. <laughs> um, and you only have to look at any news headline any day, um, you know, related to some faith group or often to the church, which shows us that we are, you know, fallen and broken and dysfunctional. Um, so I think that would be the first thing. We would, we would just be more honest. Um, and that would, I think, help us to begin to work towards some kind of church where we did actually act what we proclaim. Um, you know, and there is a lot which is impossible anyway. Yes, there is, isn't there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but, but as you say, if we're more honest about the impossibility of our ability to live up to it, then it would feel um, much more consonant, much more kind of, it would fit much more with um, who we are as a church. It, it does feel as though we project um, uh, uh, at least a mirage of perfection onto the world, which is the, um, the challenge that we hit. Shall we talk a little bit now about intersectionality? Because that's, of course, a very important word throughout um, the book. Um, and you hear it um, talked about in various different ways. Can you tell us what the word means for people who aren't enormously familiar with the word intersectionality? Um, well, it's, it was a word invented, first used by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American scholar, um, in 1989. And it basically looks at how aspects of our identities combine to create um, kind of different modes of discrimination and privilege um, and or privilege. So in my own experience, um, you know, I talk about on the on the front cover of the book, um, you know, black, British, Christian, um, gay, queer, um, all of those different layers of my identity, which kind of can combine um, together to show the ways in which I'm discriminated in a particular way. So we could look at blackness and sexuality, for example, which in my case would be two areas in which um, I experience discrimination. But of course, equally, um, to, be, to be male um, and cisgendered is a way in which I can experience privilege and power. So those two things going together go to, to show that nothing is actually that simple, um, that our identities can combine in ways um, which mean that I can both benefit um, from my identities and also be impacted negatively by them. 
Thank you. That's really, really helpful. So thinking about your own experience of intersectionality, how does your queer identity and your black identity affect your vision of justice? In many ways. I think one of the things I found is that as someone who's black, um, I'm often, you know, made to, to feel as though I don't fit in with um, a world which is made on the whole for white people. And even within black spaces, um, I become very aware quite quickly that many of the black spaces I inhabit are made for heterosexual people. Um, so there are times when within the black community um, or within black spaces, I'm made to feel like an outsider um, because of my queer identity. Um, but equally in queer spaces, because of my Christian identity, I can be made to feel like an outsider there as well. Um, so I think one of the ways in which it shaped my thinking around justice is that I know what it's like to feel like an outsider or marginalised within almost every space that I inhabit. So within the church, within my own family, within um, the queer community, within uh, you know lots of different spaces, there's always one aspect of my identity which doesn't quite fit in. And so I'm often thinking about who's not in the room, who's not around the table, um, whose voices are being silenced, because I'm always sensitive um, to aspects of my identity which are not made to feel at home. Mm. And so my vision of justice is, is always a broad one, because the way in which I see myself has had to be um, very mindful of the ways in which different aspects of my identity um, are not made to feel at home. What does it feel like to you to, to say that, you know, I am an outsider in most of the context in which I find myself, because I am an outsider in some of the contexts in which I find myself, um, obviously not in, some, in others, um, but I am regularly um, the only lay person among clergy. Um, when I, um, I grew up in a council estate in Manchester, so I was the only um, um, comprehensive school educated person in many of the people I knew. So I kind of learned how to be an outsider at quite an early age. Age, to the extent that I now often feel really uncomfortable when I'm not an outsider. Um, I, I, kind of, I, I only know how to be an outsider and then it becomes really clear that I'm not an outsider and I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Um, is that anything you do you ever have that experience or is that just weird and me? Um, I don't have it often. I think I, I, I am very deeply conscious of when I'm in black queer spaces because it's so infrequent. And that's something that I, I experience very rarely, you know, when I'm in a space um, with other people who are either black or people of color and LGBTQ plus. But I don't, do I find it weird? I don't think I find it weird. I find it deeply comforting, but it's mm -hmm. so, it's so rare, I think for me. Um, and I think I'm aware also of how, how few, you know, inclusive spaces are actually inclusive of black LGBTQ plus people. Um, so I, I see the kind of smoke and mirrors behind even, you know, spaces that seek or appear to be inclusive. And I think, if, you know, you're asking me about how I, how I feel when I express that sense of not feeling at home in many spaces. There's a sadness, I think. Um, but it's also that feeling of exile, which I think I, I see also in so many other people who are black and LGBTQ+, which was part of the motivation also for writing the book. I could see lots of people who have this sense that I have of being in exile in many different ways um, and who were not being kind of sought after. Um, 
or or pastored to, if that's the way to even use that word, um, people who just weren't being sought out really or cared for. And so part of the motivation behind the book was actually this feeling that I've expressed of not feeling at home in any space and not feeling not feeling seen in theology, you know, and even some queer theology. Yeah, that, I find that really powerful. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of exile in terms of biblical language and uh, how exile is so often expressed by a lost identity, a past identity, you know, thinking Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept, how can we sing our songs um, in a strange land? But in a sense, what you're talking about is not even so much that, because you're not looking back to a moment when it was all perfect. Um, And do you have reflections about what it's like to be permanently in exile? Um, Does that and, and do you have a vision backwards and forwards, or is that just a kind of a way in which you express um, what it feels like now? Well, I would say this is definitely a, a place where my the different parts of my identity look in two different directions, if you like. So in terms of my black identity, um, particularly in this month, um, as we look towards you know Christmas and, and this period of journeying um, throughout, throughout um, our lives and looking towards the birth of Christ, I think I do think about exile in a particular way. And my black identity looks back, I think, you know, if, if not to Africa, then at least to Jamaica as a kind of site where I had this imagined sense of belonging and community and um, safety, I think, as well, in a way. But then in terms of my queer identity, I have nowhere for that to look back to. Um, and when I bring the two together, then there is definitely no sense of a looking back to some place where um, things were kind of okay. So it's really interesting because I hadn't ever thought about that or had to articulate it before. But that's definitely a place where I think bits of me look in two different directions. Um, and I think a lot of people in the African diaspora, as we call it, um, you know, who are throughout the world um, and who look back to Africa as a home, feel this sense of um, dislocation, of exile, of a longing and a yearning for time and a place where black people hadn't suffered harm, um, or at least not the harm of enslavement, you know? Um, and that's an interesting reflection for me, because I had never, it's life right now, I had never thought of it before. And then um, we've touched just very briefly on Bible. So let's kind of think a little bit about um, the Bible, because of course, for um, your black identity, the Bible has been a really important part of your spirituality. Um, and you talk in the book about your relationship with the Bible. Um, how would you characterize it now? And for people who themselves struggle with the Bible, do you have anything that you would want to say to them? Well, I should say, I think my, my relationship to it is, is still a live one and, a, and a, a, a relationship that does bring me joy. And I'm still intrigued by scripture and I still love engaging script, with scripture and I love preaching um, from scripture. So, you know, I'm really lucky, though, I have to say, and, and you know, this is another thing where privilege comes into it, that I, I have the privilege as someone who is black and LGBT plus of having um, studied a biblical language and having, you know, been taught scripture um, for three years in Cambridge. So I, I have that benefit, which a lot of people who are black and queer haven't had. Um, and so of course I can engage with scripture in a critical way, um, which not 
many people can can say they also have the, the ability and benefit and privilege um, of having. But I also wrestle with it still, you know, um, if you like the clobber passages of scripture still um, trouble me, even though they don't trouble me on a kind of deep level in the way in which they once did. Um, but I, I still lay claim to scripture as being, you know, my text. It's, it's a text which relates to me in my life and which speaks to me. Um, and I still open scripture expecting to hear God speak. Um, and that for me is very important. So my relationship with it has, I would say, matured rather than changed or been completely transformed. Um, maybe from one which was fairly infantile. You know, I read scripture um, not bold enough to challenge it. And now I, I'm able to read scripture with commentaries and other people and able to, to be critical of it and say, well, you know, what does this mean? Um, and what does this mean to me? And am I able to own that meaning um, and share that meaning with others? Um, and I would say to other people who, who wrestle with scripture that um, that's why the text is there. You know, it's not simple. Um, I'm sure you would agree that, that it's, it's, you know, it's nothing is as simple as we want it to be. And that's part of scholarship is that we, we read something once um, and there might be one meaning and then we read it again and there are layers of meaning. Um, but nothing is as, as simple as you might want it to be. And that's part of the excitement of it. Absolutely. Um, of course, I think that. Um, I would be out of a job if I didn't think that, I think. <laughs> um, and I think for me, there's something really interesting about scripture um, that you're kind of alluding to in what you're talking about is that one of the things that bemuses me is people don't think we're allowed to have a conversation with scripture. Um, that you know, it's almost as though the scripture is the monologue and we've either got to take it all or leave it all. Um, there's no kind of no um, point in the middle. Whereas where the scripture that I read has a whole load of different voices functioning in it, which don't say the same things and often disagree with each other. And for me, uh, my reading of scripture is an invitation into a conversation in which I agree with some things, I disagree with other things, I love some bits, I hate some other bits, um, there's some bits that leave me cold, neither hot, you know, neither hot nor cold, just kind of, kind of neutral, um, yeah. and, and it, for me it's a kind of a really exciting conversational journey, mm. um, but one of the things I think it's quite hard if you don't know scripture very well is how you engage with that when often it's presented as just a single monochrome. Um, if somebody is kind of Kind of listening today and kind of scratching their heads about how they might get into this more conversational and reflective way of reading scripture. Have you got any tips for people? Well, I think often it is a nice thing to read different translations, to not just read one translation. I would say, you know, buy, buy a translation of the Bible you don't own um, already and, and see how that speaks to you. And I also find, um, I often have the Bible, um, the audio Bible on my on my phone, and I do find it a very different experience to hear scripture being read by someone else. Um, and it might be while I'm out walking, um, you know, walking the dog and just listening to David Suchet or someone reading the Bible. Um, and I find that actually changes how I hear it. Um, and I would also say read it in different places. Um, maybe read it imaginatively. So, you know, one of the things you might do with the gospel passage uh, is read one of the stories um, that Jesus um, is, is either telling, so a parable, for example, or a story that has Jesus in the center of it and ask ourselves, you know, who am I in this story? Um, and what might I say to Jesus if he asked me this question? 
and how might I feel if I was in this encounter or at this event um, and to read it more than one you know, in one sitting you know maybe a short passage so, so do things with scripture that are not just about it being read to you um, you know in church for example but read it for yourself and read it in different translations and, and hear it read um, while, you're, while you're walking or doing something else Thank you. That great tips. Um, just to move on and talk a little bit more about our um, conversations about sexuality. Um, one of the things that kind of comes through in the book is um, a yearning for us to talk about um, sexuality, um, starting from grace. And I wonder if you would like to talk a little bit about um, what for you a conversation about sexuality might look and feel like if we began with grace. So I think if, if we were able to begin with grace, it would stop us from um, doing, you know, if you, if you begin a conversation from the, the starting point of grace, it means that we start from the point of seeing the other, whoever the other is, um, as God's beloved. You know, the, the, the baseline is that the other person, you know, our conversational dialogue partner, um, even with whom you know, we might profoundly disagree, it means that that person is made in the image of God. And so the lenses with which I come into this conversation have to be the lenses of love. And that, I think, sets some really clear red lines for what conversations feel like um, and what they look like and what they sound like. Um, and often we don't do that. We, we come into um, conversations around sexuality you know, thinking, I, I have this thing to defend, um, or I have this this conviction that I have to, you know, convince other people of as being true and right. And at that point, we've already we've already failed, I think, because um, it means that there's very little of God in the conversation. Um, you know, we have to come into a conversation um, willing to hear another person and to hear them as God's beloved speaking to us. And I think that's really important. And the reason that, that starting from grace rather than mercy is important is that I think mercy, for all the good it has to offer us, um, it almost shapes conversations as um, starting from a place where someone has already done something wrong and is in the need of um, charity. Whereas grace is more than that. Grace is about me seeing you as someone of profound worth and value um, and definitely as an equal which means that we sit and we listen to each other as if Christ was speaking um, to us through the other person. And so I think that would be that would be a really important starting point. And it, it means that we would be able to talk not just about sexuality and sex, but also about the body, which I think is such an important thing. Um, you know, what does it mean and feel like for you to be you and for me to be me in the bodies that we have? Um, you know, what what scares you? What fills you with joy? What are you afraid of? Because actually, if you can tell me what you're afraid of, I might discover that we're afraid of the same thing. You know, but at that point, we might get to a really deep place. You might think, oh, you know, you've experienced that pain. Gosh, I, I know what that's like, you know, to lose someone I love or to go through that really tough experience. Um, and when we're able to talk about the flesh in a way which is not just to do with sex, I think we, we get to a much deeper place as Christian people. Um, and our obsession with just thinking about the body um, in terms of desire takes us, I think, to an often negative place. Yeah, I 
Absolutely agree. Um, if someone wanted to to be active about starting those kind of conversations, how would they do it? Because it, it feels, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, I'd love to have that conversation, genuinely love to have that conversation with you and with lots of other people as well. But so often in life, we end up with those kind of incredibly superficial conversations, don't you, where you go, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. You know, on you go. Um, how, how do we become people who are better at that form of conversation? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's not easy, you know, and that's, we, we mustn't pretend as though it is. I'd be lying if it is. I think it takes courage. And one of the one of the things that I think is most scary about what I would say I would want to propose to the church is that some of us have to take our masks off, you know, not the ones we're wearing at the moment because of the pandemic, but the mask that we wear so often, you know, someone has to have the courage to say, um, this is what this is not what I think about this, this is what I feel about this, you know, um, which is really hard. And it might have to be those of us who lead churches, um, those of us who are up at the front often, um, those of us who are, if you like, often feel as though we're paid to wear the mask. Um, it, might, it might mean that some of us who are not good at doing the vulnerable thing might have to do it. And at that point, I think as soon as one person breaks the silence, um, one person is honest enough to say what they really feel. Um, at that point, it does give other people permission to go there. Um, and what grace is about, it means that we should be able to hold each other um, enough <laughs> that actually that kind of vulnerability isn't, isn't too costly, but takes us somewhere, um, takes us to a point and a place in which we're able to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Um, something that James Baldwin, uh, um, African-American gay writer um, from the past says, is that condemnation is easier than wonder. He says this in one of his essays, uh, To Crush a Serpent. Um, he says that condemnation is easier than wonder. And I think that's true. Mm. It's so much easier for us to condemn each other than it is for us to wonder about what it might mean to be connected mm. um, or to be following Christ alongside each other in this time, in this world in which we all share. Um, if we could talk about that more, that would that would be amazing. It really would, wouldn't it? It would, it would transform things. As you're talking, I'm reminded of the great Nadia Boltzweber, who mm -hmm. talks about um, talking from our scars and not from our wounds. And uh, I've, when I've heard her say that on a number of occasions, I've been really struck by it, um, that, it's important to get our conversations about our vulnerabilities right so that if it becomes us simply spilling our wounds that's not a healthy or a helpful conversation to be having but if we can talk about scars that have healed over that we've done our um, in, inner work on that that can be a good vulnerability um, to be able to speak from but that's quite a tough judgment call isn't it it is, and I think I would want, I would want to, um, to kind of reflect on whether we can always know when a wound becomes a scar, you know. And actually, I think the kind of vulnerability I'm talking of means that often people will talk from their wound, and actually, if there's enough grace in the room, that that can be okay, you know. Um, I think that's 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 part of what I think um, Christian community can be about 
at its best. And I'm sure there have been moments when we've experienced this, when we perhaps misjudged, you know. Um, we hear someone share something, even in a sermon, for example, and we think, gosh, you know, should you be sharing that? But actually, often the conversations that follow are so deeply profound, and that was never planned. Um, and perhaps if the person who shared, you know, had thought too much about it, they would never have said anything at all. <laughs> um, but actually, what, what's been opened up is so deeply um, real that it's taken that whole community to a place that they would never have gone to. Um, and I think actually those thin places and those thin moments when we realise that we're more alike than we, than we sometimes think um, might sometimes be worth us making that risk. Um, I'm not sure I always know when a wound is a scar. Sometimes what I think are scars are actually still wounds. <laughs> And yeah, it, and, and you only discover it once you start talking about it, don't you? <laughs> exactly. Um, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think your caution on that is absolutely right because if we waited until everything about which we felt vulnerable um, was nicely healed over, we might then not do the vulnerability that you're talking about. It's. Uh... Since we're into the conversation about vulnerability and um, one of my um, great um, favourite Japanese proverbs um, is um, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. It's kept me going through um, some of the grimmest times of my life, you know, the OK, you've been knocked down, up you get again. Um, but what I'm beginning to realise as I'm getting older is that if I don't pay attention to the cost it's taken for me to get back up again then um, one of the problems that I've got is um, I do kind of carry on my bruise I carry my bruises too much around with me um, and then the next time it's easier to knock me over because I haven't been doing that work around taking care of myself and one of the things I kind of I, I kind of regularly in my mind is is how do we as Christians um, who draw criticism um, because of who we are, you know, I, I draw criticism because I'm a woman and because I'm a lay person in the church. Um, you draw um, criticism because you're black and you have queer identity. Um, how do we who draw that criticism actually do good quality self-care so that we aren't kind of dragging our battered and bruised selves around with us too much? You know, that we, we, we've talked a little bit about the wounds and the scars and how it's hard to kind of tell when it's a scar. Um, but actually, it, we do need to be aiming for there being more scars than weeping wounds. How do we do that? If you've got a magic answer, I'd love to hear it. Oh, I wish I did have. I think it's tough. I think, um, you know, one of, the thing I, one of the things I think we can be bad at as Christians, um, and I think this is probably particularly true of men, I think, is, is reaching out for things like therapy. You know, particularly as a black man, I think that for me has been, was a real kind of, um, learning curve to actually have to ask for for help in that way um, and as a Christian you know we sometimes have these bizarre thoughts that you know prayer and the Lord will make everything fine but actually there is so much out there which is also designed to help us and it might be something as as simple as you know picking up the phone and, and calling a therapist and saying you know can I can I see you um, I would be a, a strong advocate of therapy it's been very helpful to me you know alongside um, all the other things like prayer um, and and other things like rest and, and reflection and meditative prayer. Um, but I think the thing is that there is something that I found very freeing 
about just kind of naming the fact that sometimes in life we will be hurt by people and by situations and sometimes no one will care sometimes no one will apologize and that's just the way it will be and for me there was something about naming that in my own experience saying actually this has happened um no one seems to care no one's going to apologize about this and it won't be undone it's happened um and so i have to live now and i have i have to live in the light of that experience um and i will always have that experience within me um that scar that wound will always be there um so what is life going to look like and that's a really hard kind of conversation to have with yourself and and with god um and you know you can accuse god and say well why why did that happen and why have i experienced that and it's often more than criticism it, it can be real violence it can be can be real pain um you know how how do i live with this you know as someone who is a christian and who does this make me now because i will be different i will be changed by that painful experience you know and to acknowledge that and name it i found the most freeing thing uh, more than anything else thank you so as we're drawing our conversation to a close um i'd like to ask you what your vision for the church might be you know your martin luther king moment what's your dream um, of how the church can be in the future um that a church that has read your book has engaged with the message of grace who listens really carefully um, to the message that, that has um, come out um, what's your vision for the church I think well it's a tough one that is tough I think for me my visions for the church um you know and I and I should start by saying that I think my vision for the church is of a church which is not even yet existing I I think the church is still to be born it's it's not it's it doesn't almost exist um as it ought to be so for me that that is the first thing to say I'm I'm longing for a day when the church is actually born um and actually exists but my vision for that church is is of a church which um draws closer to one another a church in which there is a deeper intimacy because i think that when we draw closer to each other we draw closer to god um a church in which we can look one another in the eye um and in doing that we can see the face of god in those who are different to us um and in those who you might have different convictions um i i think i i have a longing for a church which is weaker in many ways and which relies totally upon god um and which only cares about the fact and only trusts in the truth that christ has died christ is risen and christ will come again i'm in I'm very happy to be a part of that church when it when it arrives among us. Jerrell, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you Paula. It's been great.